millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans. I'll give it a rest. You're under new management. It's Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast now. Hello, I'm Peter Hart and with me is that danger to shipping, well, the, un- the unwary Marathon <laughs> Matalo, anyway, uh, Gary Bain. Hello, Gary. How are you this morning? I'm really good, thanks for that's an interesting introduction. <laughs> oh dear. So what are we doing today, Gary? Well, it's another episode in the exciting tale of the South Knots Hussars, and this time we're uh, introducing them starting the fight in Northwest Europe. We're going to do this in two parts, Pete. This is part one. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, we'd looked at uh, all their previous career, and you can, we can't go through all that in too much detail. We've looked at them, uh, their formation, Palestine, the, all the fighting in North Africa. We'd looked at uh, how they uh, fought in Sicily, how they came home, how they'd uh, reformed as a 107 regiment with two batches, 425 and 426. So all of that is in previous podcasts. So let's look at where we get to now. 13th of July, 1944. Uh, D-Day's happened, uh, and the, these are part of the reinforcement units being sent across the channel. And they go across the channel on that day, 13th of July, on board uh, a couple of American Liberty ships. And amongst them is uh, a chap called uh, Ronald uh, Paisley. He's a gunner, he's a signaller, uh, uh, with uh, 426 battery, 107th medium. Now, this is a new source, uh, for us and I'm using uh, I used a book he wrote uh, in 1945 from Normandy to victory with the South Knots as ours a wonderful book uh, self-published I've only ever seen one or two copies uh, you've given I'm away not... the end now I know who wins ah but he might be a double agent <laughs> where was he from Pete just so that I get he's, the accent right uh, he's from Scotland oh dear uh, Glasgow way. Oh, I dear. think he's from. <laughs> I think he's from Paisley. <laughs> I'll go for that anyway. So uh, anyway, uh, and the similarities from when they first went across in January 1940. They went across to France on the way to Palestine, and it's a lot. He's another young man who doesn't know what's happening, isn't he? And you're going to read a quote from him, aren't you? Probably not in a Scottish accent, Gary. I know you're a natural-born Scotsman, but. 
Is just there, is there such a thing as an unnatural born Scotsman? Most of them, I'd have said. And you knew that would happen. You deli- <laughs> oh. Anyway, this is signal of Ronald Paisley of 426 Battery. We boarded the boat on a warm July morning. I recall vividly with what misgivings I viewed the khaki-clad men climbing the gangway. What lay before us over that strip of water? How long would it be before we docked once more with the war behind us? It was a rowdy scene, but underneath was a very real air of depression. Men were killed in war. Not all of us would return. And and that's that must that must that's just very human, isn't it? That's just what men going into action would feel, and and they were going into action. Now they're approaching Aramanches. We we went to Aramanches, an amazing place, uh, and and there were hundreds of ships still there that from Operation uh, Neptune. They were D Day landings, all sizes and shapes, uh, big ones, little ones, you know. Uh, so there was sort of, sort of gary like battleships uh, and then there was sort of cruiser like cruiser like pete's the, 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 humble minesweepers <laughs> like you pete very humble oh, thank you humble minesweeper and uh, they land they land to get ashore the usual <laughs> usual stuff about uh, why did we waterproof all these vehicles yes right because <laughs> they get ashore without getting their feet wet uh and uh, one thing that is immediately apparent as they land is that they're not a big cog anymore, are they? We've talked about this in, in Sicily. They're now a very small cog in a very big wheel, whereas a battery had mattered at, or a regiment had mattered at Tobruk, because there's only two or three regiments there, three or four regiments there. Now that they're part of an AGRA, an Army Group Royal Artillery, which is, there's loads of them. Is it they're, 9th they're, AGRA? I can't remember. I think it is well. 9th AGRA. I'm just putting you on the spot there, Pete. Is it 9th Agra? It's, yes, it's 9th or 8th. <laughs> it's 9th, I think. There's only, what's one digit between friends? It's 9th. Uh, but that's just part of one. That's loads of medium regiments. And then there's all the normal field artillery. There's lots and lots and lots and lots of guns. So they land. There's uh, no Luftwaffe about at the time. The skies are full of, uh, of, of British and American planes. And one thing that I like is that as they land... What's one thing we talked about? The South Nazis' ability to win extra vehicles. <laughs> and, and here's a, a character we've only just been introduced to. It's uh, Major Leonard Gibson, uh, headquarters 107th uh, Medium RA. And he's a, he's a posh bloke. And uh, he's, he'd known the South Nazis' before the war. Uh, he'd been in the Northumberland, uh, Northumberland Sausages. He was a Newcastle-based uh, artillery regiment. And uh, go go on then. What? How how do they how do they win new 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 trucks, lorries, cookie houses, and things? Now you're not doing Gibson because we're not having that stupid accent that you do. Yes, there's been complaints, hasn't there? They have. So I'm going to be Major Leonard Gibson. <laughs> Both batteries for a number of vehicles over strength, shall we say? I've officially no idea at all. But I know full well that if there was any vehicle about, someone would jump in it. Uh, and if it was drivable, I'd add it to our strengths. Thinking of when anything went wrong, we'd have an extra vehicle. That was that was one of the clearest readings I've ever heard. It's brilliant. <laughs> Blood it? I may not do that again. 
Yeah, you will, you will. Your public demand it. Now, 17th of July, they're, 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 they're moving forward from the, from from Aramanch area. And they said, uh, Gibson, Leonard Gibson, that's who you were, Major Leonard Gibson, uh, and his recce parties, he's second in command, he's often in charge of the recce parties. And they're going to find suitable gun positions in the village of Le Mesnel. That's about a mile east of uh, Ranville, where the, you know where the Glauders landed? And south, five miles southwest of Khan. And what do you say this time, Gibson? Uh, I would go forward with the survey officer, scratch about, crawl, looking for gun positions to get the guns into action as quickly as possible. As soon as I was happy, I would call up the two battery representatives with a hunting horn. I would blow it. Aha! They were only half a mile away, and they would know when I wanted them. I had different signals. One toot or two toots. A simple code so the Hun wouldn't know. I love my hunting horn. Follow that. (laughs) I don't say anything about how you love your horn. (laughs) It's just not going to go well with our great British public. So... So, now, so the main body follow them inland, and, and Ken Giles, so now we talked about Ken Giles, he's a lovely bombardier, uh, an intelligent, sensitive individual, so it's surprised that I'm reading it, <laughs> but here you go. And bombardier Ken Giles says this, we realised that there had been plenty of action because villages we went through were virtually non-existent. I don't think the French people were particularly ter- terribly pleased to see us. After all, we'd knocked their world to hell. Smithereens! Although we might have been liberators. I think they were on the fringe of occupation and I don't suppose they'd suffered too badly. They looked rather fed up with the whole thing and I don't wonder because they were trying to get their lives together again. Uh, and already the, the, these desert warriors or, or uh, you know, even Sicily they're looking around with concern because Sicily's they'd found that full of people but this the Normandy countryside is a whole new environment uh, and this is uh, Lieutenant Charles Westlake he's, uh, he's been with us right the way from the start a wonderful blow, he's in 426 battery of 107 medium and he says this, the French countryside was vastly diff- different from anything we'd been accustomed to previously such close country with high hedges, woods, cottages fairly intensively occupied and cultivated, you couldn't see what the devil was going on despite Sicily, we'd really been used to desert warfare where you could see for miles in every direction in this country you couldn't see a damn thing now who who were they under they were now under the operational command of the headquarters of the canadian corps and and what's coming up is operation goodwood uh, that's going to be law. This is to 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 complete the ca- the the capture of Khan. Eighteenth uh, of July. That's the date. Uh, the attack was to go in a huge huge bombing raid on Khan and on the German defence forces. Uh, and 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 what and the role of one hundred seven regiment was to destroy or try and destroy all identified German anti aircraft batteries uh, to give the bombers a clear run. Uh, and they then, after they'd done that, they moved on to counter-battery fire and, uh, uh, and, and, and they moved forward to new gun positions in the suburbs of Cairn. Uh, and from there they would provide close artillery support, or close, fairly close. The Canadians always like, remember from the Sicily episode, the Canadians like them to be close too. Uh, they were just left of the main road, if you look at a map, which I don't think you'd be able to find it, with a railway embankment just behind them, close to the River Orne. Just a few hundred yards from the German positions on the south bank. And then that night, 
Uh, why at night? Because that's the only time that German aircraft can really operate. They're here approaching German aircraft. And you're going to be signaler Ronald Paisley again, 426 battery. In the midst of the anti-aircraft barrage of sound, we had our first sensation of those deadly anti-personnel bombs, which burst about eight feet high and shoot out steel in all directions. We held our breath. It is an awful sensation, not improved by the noise, and we expected a packet any moment. He was over now, and the drone began to recede. We were just congratulating ourselves when the urgent call for stretcher bearers echoed out in the darkness. Stretcher bearers. And uh, there were four men wounded, and their first fatality, Lance Bombardier Raymond Whittington. He's the first one killed since uh, they landed in France. Uh, there'd be many more, of course. Uh, then there's a bit of a stalemate, the, fr the, the uh, Canadians fighting to expand their bridgehead over the River Orme. Uh, and and a, an old friend, in a way, comes back. He's been released, uh, he's, he's escaped from, well, he got, he'd, been, he'd got out of prison uh, when the Italians surrendered from being a POW. Major William Barber comes back and takes command of 426 Battery. And at the same time, one of our other heroes of the these podcasts harold harper he's been promoted to battery sergeant major and uh, he's he's not happy at first is he and and, and uh, this is what he says some senior ranks from 16th medium buckled under 16th medium were the ones they joined up with to form 107th medium a battery sergeant major and two sergeants found it too much as a result, I was moved to be Battery Sergeant Major, 426 Battery. A majority of my chaps were then from 16th Medium. I despaired, quite frankly, because I found the Sergeant Major was operating, that's the Troop Sergeant Major, as if he was still on Salisbury Plain. He had about 15 rounds of ammunition per gun. The battery I'd just left had 250 rounds per gun. It was a lack of fighting experience. And this is one of the problems that they were, they were facing. Um, now, he was a long-standing NCO. What do you think he thought of his officers? Well, I think he probably thought that they uh, were demonstrating a, a lack of experience, that uh, they weren't as competent as they might have been. But uh, he was quite... I'm going to use the word opinionated, wasn't he, Harper? He had his views. He was, yeah. Uh, and sometimes he had to bite his lip, I think is, is fair to say. Well, otherwise he'd be in trouble, wouldn't he? Um, yeah. Uh, uh, now... Um, uh, so uh, the German resistance around Cannes crumbling and 21st of July uh, they move forward and they pass some of them pass through Cannes and uh, this is a quote from from Ronald Paisley uh, which gives an idea of what had happened to Cannes and people could see the pictures of this anywhere on the internet it is devastated what does he say no earthquake could have created more havoc in such a large town than the perpetual bombing and shelling Cannes had experienced over the last few days the whole centre was one huge mass of fallen masonry, brickwork, buckled and twisted steel girders and charred woodwork. Roads were torn open and pitted with bomb craters in which the rain was settling in dull red pools. Complete carnage was visible on every hand as we passed through the streets, or rather valleys forced through the debris. In that depressing drizzle, the site presented a truly grotesque picture absolutely unforgettable that's uh, quite quite a description of that because that's where people were living um uh, the, the, when he talks about valleys he means they bulldozed they bulldozed the through the rubble yeah now uh ahead of them uh, are the recce parties uh led by the rather irrepressible 
Leonard Gibson. He's a great, uh, interesting character. And the only place he could find for gun positions are in a tiny village of Demerville. That's just about three miles east of Cannes. And it, it's a terrible gun position. Uh, there's too many guns about there. The place is jam-packed with British units. And it's boggy and he couldn't dig out proper gun pits. Uh, and they're also in a bit of a bulge in the British line. And they're, they're getting shell fire and f- from both flanks. Uh, and um, and they're under a lot of fire while they're at Demerville. And, and this is a quote from Sergeant Albert Swinton. Two-fisted Albert Swinton. Sergeant, uh, by this time, 425 battery. And, and this is a wonderful quote of the, of, of the British Army at war. Sergeant Albert Swinton. That evening, I went across to the other troop to see old Andy Druitt. He was in this barn with a big jar of jellied eels he'd found. We sat there and scoffed all these and drank a bottle of whiskey between us. I went back to my gun and I must have flaked out. I woke up next morning and there were shell holes all around the place. Half this wall was missing and there was me laid out on the deck. I looked round and a head peered out of a hole in the ground. Are you all right, Sarge? I said, yeah, what's been going off? Well, we didn't want to wake you in case you got up and got killed. You were all right flat out on the deck. Apparently, old Jerry knocked hell out of us during the night. There were shells flying all over the place. And there was me sleeping it off. That's a wonderful quote. He's a good soldier. That may make you think he's a drunken bump, but he's not. He's a good soldier. But he enjoyed a drink, as so many of the British Army do. Demerville's just untenable. And 31st of July, they moved to... Not far away. In fact, we've been to these places on a, on a D-Day tour we did to Mondeville. Uh, it's on a reverse slope in a hilly wood. Again, close to the eastern uh, outskirts of Cannes. And it's much better. And they're, 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 they're undisturbed. They're, but they're very busy. And in a sense, we don't get a sense of the busyness because, because this is just a routine. Do you know how many shells they fired at that time? 20,000 shells into German lines. You didn't give me a chance to guess. That was going to be my guess. Was it? You are so well informed, Gary. Yeah. Well, mainly because Twen- it's on my notes. 20,000 shells is a lot. And, and remember, each one of them's a hundred, well, they're a mixture of 80 pound and 100 pound, of just smashing down. It must have created some hell. And this is a quote from... Uh, uh, from Ronald Paisley again. Now, he was a, a signaller, but th- he'd helped out on the guns. The, the gun crews get tired. They're, they're heavy, these bloody shells, 100 pounds. And uh, the power of the guns makes a big impression of him. You're going to be uh, Paisley again, aren't you? Let's, let's hear it. Our team was ready. Stand by, fire! A terrific boom for the moment stunned the senses. The vivid flash at night necessitates the turning away of the head to save the eyes. The gun had barely ceased rocking when the next hundred pound of metal was thrust into the breach, and from then onwards all other sense was lost in the thunder of cannon. The earth shook as barrel after barrel probed the darkness with vicious sheets of flame. Time was forgotten. The prancing gun, the sweating gunners, the rhythm of a team in action all added zest and excitement to the moment. Wow. I mean, it's 
it's it's uh, that's a good description. It's a it's a good uh, source. Is old Paisley. Uh, now the next big attack, Operation Totalizer, that's launched by the Canadian Corps on seventh of August, uh, and uh, they need close support. Again, they always want close support. And there's an attack by the Third Canadian Division and the Polish Armoured Division on Quesnay Woods, put in on the fourteenth uh, of August. That's going on, and that's been holding out. Uh, uh, they've got well dug in tanks, panzers, and a covering screen of 88 millimeter guns. I want to say that every gun is an 88 millimeter to the British by this time. If it's a 75 millimeter pack, no, or 50, no, it's an 88 millimeter as far as they're concerned. And 13 millimeters uh, can make all the difference. So I'm told. Um, I wouldn't know. I'm married. Uh, as a recognition of the seriousness, they organise a thousand bomber RAF raid. Uh, on the wood. What could go wrong? And the uh, the South Ossars are going to fire a preparatory programme and then move forward to give the closest possible support, Gary. The closest possible. What could go wrong? Well, everything goes wrong, doesn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, this is uh, Lieutenant Bob Folds, uh, 425 battery, uh, a great character we followed again from the start of these podcasts. We'd no sooner got these guns in place then the bombers came over. For the first 20 minutes, all came down on Quesnay Wood. Tremendous bombing, clouds of smoke, dust, and everything going up from these woods. Cheers all round. This'll show em. All of a sudden, some bombs dropped behind us. Obviously, back towards where these markers had fallen. From then on, they started bombing between Quesnay Wood and our old positions at Simtau. We had a very frightening afternoon. These bombs were just being dropped at random into the smoke that the previous ones had created. Once the target had been obscured, they weren't navigating onto the target. They were bombing where the previous bombers had been. Oh, wow. That's trouble, isn't it? Uh, now, in in amidst the bombs was Ronald Paisley, and there's sort of huge explosions going off here, there, and everywhere, all around him. Uh, it, it, it seems impossible to survive. And uh, what what does he say? Signal of Ronald Paisley. Crump! Debris and stones hurled against the trees above our shelter with the sound of a rainstorm. Crump! It was terrifying. The ground shook. Crump! Crump! Couldn't someone give warning or in some way make them understand? We hugged the earth. Crump! Um, Battery Sergeant Major Harold Harper, he's watching and he sees this the little Oster, you know, the Oster light aircraft, they used them for uh, air observation. And it's flying in amongst the bombers, trying to, to, trying to firing signal lights and, and sort of trying to tell them that they've gone wrong. And, and it, Harold Harper says this. He's 46 battery, remember? He says, waves and waves of Lancasters. They're opening the bomb doors and the bombs are raining down. It seemed ages before one of the little Oster aircraft went flying amongst them, waggling his wings as much as to say some was wrong and directed them further forward. As soldiers, we were expected to be killed by the enemy, but one didn't fancy being killed by one's own air force. It's not really funny, is it? No, it's perfectly uh, all right to be killed by the opposition air force. Oh, absolutely. Par for the course. Uh, anyway, 425 batteries only has a couple of casualties, but the Poles, the Polish Armour Division, are absolutely hammered. And the fields were littered with corpses round about, which the, the, the South Knots had to go through. The, the, the Germans abandoned Quesnay 
Woods uh, the next day and the, the advance to Falaise, the Falaise Gap, all this goes off and that continues. You've got the, I'm not going to explain the Falaise Gap, the British and um, Americans uh, acting in tandem that with a, they're trying to close this gap through which the German, I think it's 6th Army, can escape. Wouldn't bet on that. The word 7th is awfully similar to 6th, isn't it? I want I'm you to explain to the Falaise Gap. Tell me, well, tell me. I, w- I want you to picture a Neapolitan ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Layers. <laughs> now, 16th of August, uh, the, it, it all turns into a bit of a pursuit. Uh, and the Canadians are going, get, 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 we need close support. Get forward. Get the guns forward. We need the closest possible support. Almost like field artillery. But these are medium guns. And on 18th of August, there's a bit of a disaster. Colonel Oswald, now we've mentioned him, he's a posh bugger. Uh, who's in charge, he's obviously colonel in charge of the regiment, he took a turn looking for forward gun positions. Uh, They were near Le Mesnil. Uh, It's supposed to have been cleared cleared of Germans. And, uh, oh, it's blood knock again, isn't it? So Major Leonard Gibson, tell us what happens. What goes wrong? What goes wrong? Uh, The Canadian Army wanted us forward and more forward and more forward. One had to try and check up that the area was clear of enemy and move the guns up there and then start firing on targets that their armour or recce regiments were sending down. The pace was so hot, they were so keen to cut off the whole of the German 14th Army Oops! (laughs) that were approaching Falaise. Colonel Oswald got his orders and as the recce was obviously going to be rather more dangerous, he was given a tank but a second tank to cover him. So he came up to me and said, Now you wait there, and I'll have a look into this forward position here and see if we can get the guns into that area. That looks rather nice. He was so fed up doing nothing, I think. Bit of bravado. I've got a tank. This is fun. He drove straight into a strongly held enemy position, and he was bazookered and his tank put out of action. I think they were both put on fire. He jumped out of it. He got shot, and they got hold of him. The Canadians weren't very happy about this, and I was the chap who had to go and tell them, my colonel has disappeared. I know he's been shot up. Whether he's alive or dead, I don't know. Well, yes, the Canadians were cross because they'd lost two of their tanks. <laughs> um, there's a lot of uh, orders, counter-orders in the in the ensuing situation, uh, and they never found a, a, a suitable position for, to fire that day. Uh, that's when the Canadians attacked and captured uh, the, the town of Tron. I think, did we go there? I can't remember. Uh, 19th of August, the South Otisars, uh, really come into their deadly own. Uh, Gibson had got the batteries forward. He'd found gun positions near Trun, and then they received reports that there was a large number of German troops trying to break through uh, all that's left of the Falaise Gap. Now, they hadn't surveyed in. They'd got no zero lines established, but they used the airburst ranging method, which I believe we explained in one of the earlier podcasts. Uh, and you're going to be Gibson again. Tell us what happens. Yeah, I'm going to do this as me. Fly me to the moon. Um, So this is Major Leonard Gibson. I had to get my guns into action and start firing. That was quite a tricky thing, but our young officers were up to it. With no survey at all, they would fire an airburst by which the OP officers could get the bearings. Then they would fire a second one 
and then he could order them into these various targets. We pumped 100 pound shells into that area right through the day. Later on, as we moved forwards, I saw all the damage we had caused and it was heartbreaking, particularly when you see animals still alive. They hadn't been put out of their misery. By this time, I was hardened. You had to close your eyes and just get on. Now, uh, they, they, they were doing well that day, but what to the what what can you always expect from the Germans? Counterattack, and they did. They counterattacked, uh, and and they, they, for a moment they were in real trouble. There was no not many infantry holding the line, uh, and there's mortars and Nebelwerfer of shells falling all around. Then there's a traditional thing: they're always tigers. There's reports that there's tiger tanks on the way. And uh, and Gibson, he knows that his, I mean, medium regiments aren't exactly mobile. He knows that they're in danger and he takes an immediate decision. And uh, I admire what he does. Uh, and I'm glad you're not doing funny accents now because this is action. Tell us what happened, Sam. Major Leonard Gibson. It was too far forward. We could have done better if we were 5,000 yards from our target. We got ourselves right up where the targets were as close as 2,000 yards. Now, if we'd been field guns, we could have used ourselves as anti-tank guns, and that would have been all right. It was reported that panzer tanks were within a very short distance of us, so all I could do was to move back to another position I had already wrecked. It was this Canadian brigadier had made us go so far forwards. I'd argued with him, and then I just took it into my own hands. We pulled out. We might have stayed. We might have been written off. We might have been heroes. I don't know, but I had the regiment and the men to think about. And so I pulled them back about a mile and then we got into action again. And I think that's the right decision. And of course, this calls into mind decisions taken during the Battle of Knightsbridge where they were fundamentally wiped out. Uh, it's not as if he's pulled back and not carried on fighting. He pulls back and then drops into action and carries on fighting. Uh, it's just they're not vulnerable to being overrun again. So I think, it, and it's generally accepted later on that he'd done the right thing. Yeah, it must have been because it, it's at this point that uh, he's appointed to command the 107th Medium Regiment Royal Artillery. That's right. A, a barber that comes in as second in command. And then another voice from the past, another one, Major Peter Birkin, uh, one of my all time favourites. He takes over command of 426 Battery. Those are all temporary promotions. Uh, well, presumably because the Colonel's gone. Well, the colonel's gone, but then on the 23rd of August, the colonel comes back. <laughs> you particularly liked how he escaped, and there's a particular relevance to your own military career. Your, oh, sorry, glorious military here. How does, uh, how does Colonel Oswald escape? Well, he manages to escape by uh, disguising his rank. He, he removes his uh, collar and tie, and uh, he, he makes them believe he's a lance bombardier, or lance corporal, as, uh, as I was, so that he's not sent off with the other officer prisoners. And that gives him an opportunity, and he takes it, and he escapes from the prisoner of war cage. Uh, I think that's quite something. It's a bit daring uh, do, isn't it? Oh, oh, it's good stuff. I mean, uh, the, the thing is, Oswald is a good officer. Sadly, he doesn't appear in, 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 in my book or in these podcasts much uh, because he hasn't left a record. He left an account of the desert fighting. He was a desert veteran, but uh, which is in the War Museum. But we have nothing for, for him for this period. And so, and so he's a bit... That's why we're a bit Gibson-focused, who's the second in command. I think that there's a bit of... Uh... Uh, stripe envy as well because uh, when we talked about the Christmas truce there was an officer who put on a, a Lance Corporal's overcoat to disguise himself so I think all these officers secretly want to be Lance Corporal 
Yes, yes, I'm sure you're right, Gary. You, you, you have such an insight into the position, which you didn't hold long. Anyway, um, so what what happens? Well, uh, there's then a very confusing period, and we there's then because he, uh, Oswald is then sent home uh, to recover, he, he, and it's a period where between him and Gibson, he's backwards and forwards, and the two of them take it in turns as a command in, in essence. Uh, now the the Falaise battles have ended. Most of the German Seventh Army, you'll notice the Fourteenth, Seventh, and Sixth have all been mentioned, and I, I think that's a, I, what I like to do in podcasts is always leaves a bit of research for the person to do. It's not that we don't know, Gary. Not that we don't know. <laughs> it's just we're leaving a bit of a bit of something for the the punter to look up, wouldn't you say? Not that we don't know ourselves. <laughs> well, I wouldn't include me in this. Oh, which is it then? Uh, it's a historian. Pete would never say anything that he didn't know to be true. So you're clearly uh, hedging your bets. I think is how I describe it. I've no bloody eye. I'm going for seventh this time. I know I went for sixth before. I'm going for seventh now. Um, now, uh, there's then a bit of a rest. The Falaise battles are over uh, and they're given a bit of time out of the line. Uh, they, they, they stay in various French villages and then end up in the Rouen area. Uh, and as they move into areas that haven't been devastated by fighting, as in the Normandy Bocage area, there's a, a better uh, reception. And you're going to be signaller Ronald Paisley again, and he gives a lovely little account of that, doesn't he? One of the chief occupations was that of barter with the French people, cigarettes and soap being offered to them in exchange for butter and eggs. This was becoming almost an obsession now as we approached the farm district, districts, and the phrase, Avez-vous de oeuf, s'il vous plaît, pour cigarette? I love the way you did it in a particularly bad French accent to recreate the whole thing of the British soldier. Thanks, Pete. That came into constant use. This opening phrase led the farm wife to believe that we could converse fluently in French, and the result was a rapid counter-attack in that language. A shame-faced pardon was all we could muster in reply. However, by making up various words from our limited vocabulary and by using signs, we found we could manage to understand fairly well, though with considerable laughter. <laughs> I do like that quote. I like Paisley. I think he's a, a, a character. Uh, anyway, uh, late August, Leonard Gibson is at that time in command and he takes the opportunity to set, allow his men to go off on unofficial, and I mean unofficial, unsanctioned leave sessions to, in, in uh, well just to, their visits to Paris he sends off a lorry load from each troop uh, and most of them who fancied it were able to go now Harold Harper went and uh, he, he was present during quite a favourite incident I mean it's in all the books although I'd never heard of it that's looking up I am a first world war I'm a historian I'm a first world war person anyway it was all new to me but this is what Harold Harper said we were on the Place de, de la Concorde when General de Gaulle marched down there we saw everything was going off. I love going off. Everything <laughs> going off, ah. Huh? <laughs> and then suddenly, somebody from the top window of a hotel opened up with a machine gun. There we were, lying in a plastic on good, plastic de lac on good, with machine gun bullets flying around us. We were cursing each other for whose idea it was to come to Paris. And then Ian Sinclair and his mates, they're also there. They fell on their feet a bit. Uh, they didn't have much money. That's 
fairly common for a British soldier. And tell us what Ian Sinclair, he's 426 battery at this time. Uh, what did it, What did he say, Gary? It caused great amusement and attracted a huge crowd of people in the Champs-Élysées when we got out our petrol brew cans and our kettles and made tea. Some chaps drank from their mess tins. The crowd grew and grew at somebody lighting a fire in the Champs-Élysées and even more tickling, we got tea. They'd never seen tea for years, so we became everybody's friend very quickly. We had a very pleasant time just off the Champs-Élysées where there were some celebrations going on and there were lots of line of wine flowing. <laughs> Yeah, obviously, obviously, I'd had a bit. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, a lot of people thought fall of Paris, worst is over. The German army's falling back very fast, but the war really hasn't finished with them. Now, let's go on a little sideline. Let's talk about, and we do want his accent here, I'm afraid, because the next quote is just perfectly suited to the, your your uh, your posh officer voice, um, because. Major Leonard Gibson, I really liked him. He, I, I went to interview him in, in Holtwistle, I think it was, and he was a wonderful bloke. Very different from, from, from us, Gary. Uh, he was quite posh. His, his main hobby was beagle hunting. He, he was... Uh, don't look puzzled, Gary. Well, my main hobby is beagle hunting. No, it is not beagle hunting. <laughs> I hunt beagles arson. everywhere. <laughs> yes. Do you know what a beagle is, Gary? Dog, I think. <laughs> it chases foxes, I think. Uh, anyway, he, he, on foot. Um, anyway, he's, he's, he, he likes being in command of 107 Medium. He, and he, he's the sort of officer who wants to be involved in everything. If there's something going off in the regiment, he wants to be part of it. So g give us a quote, uh, 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 Major Leonard Gibson. I, I could then go round to gun positions. F gunner bloke said, Sir, do you see my boots? I put in for new ones weeks ago and nothing's happened. I would deal with that and he would get his boots. I helped everyone that I could. There were home problems and one wrote letters to families. That was a matter of shaking up the chain of command. I gather they all got to know me rather Monty-like. It was a good Thing. They couldn't really miss me at six foot three inches walking around. I wore rather a special battle dress, tailored, smart, properly cut with lapels. I always wore a yellow tie and cream shirt. I don't think I ever wore a tin hat. It wasn't comfortable. Style and turnout are extremely important. <laughs> He's just, he is a character. He, how can you not like him? Uh, I mean, I, I don't, what would the ordinary squaddy think of someone who ignores uniform regulations? Well, that's interesting because I know what they tend to think. Um, but uh, it's also interesting the relationship he had with uh, Colonel Oswald and the Brit and the periods when they, they, they sort of alternate command. Um, in the interview, uh, it's one-sided because we only interviewed Gibson. And he, he basically thinks that he was bad-tempered, Oswald, and he drank too much um, out of the line, out of the line, not in the line. Uh, so, And he thought he was basically not interested in the regiment. He was only interested in uh, his own career. Gibson makes accusations that Oswald was really after a DSO. That's all he was after. He gets one, did not he? No. He does, uh, but there's also a bit of bitterness here. And you've got, I like Gibson. I don't know Oswald, of course. Uh, Gibson was a bit jealous. He was the only colonel not given a DSO, and I don't see why that was. Even the people 
after the war had ended, who commanded the regiment, got a DSO. He didn't. Um, and and to be fair, he turned down a promotion to left a staff promotion to lieutenant colonel, in order to to uh, he wanted to command an artillery regiment, and he'd taken a second in command as a major to to get it. Um, would you describe him as a medal hunter? Do you think? Well, he described himself as such. He he it's was true. He did. He was quite open about that. He was obsessed with winning honours, decorations. He loved it. And he mentions every what he gets in the interview. Now, that can be reprehensible, medal hunters. But he does look after his men. And he also, and this came across a lot in the interview, he would write up his men to make sure they got the decorations they reserve. Now, what do I mean by writing up? What do you think I mean? Do you, do you think I mean writing the exact and literal truth? Or do you think gilding the lily? What do you think? Well, I was going to use the word embellished. He, he wouldn't lie, but he would use language that emphasised the bravery and the heroic nature, such as I've never seen such an act before, just to, uh, to emphasise and make sure that it was recognised. And it wasn't for his own personal gain. This was for for the gain of, of the person that he was recommending. So he wasn't self-obsessed. Uh, he, he was obsessed with gaining things, but he was obsessed with getting other people that proper just reward. I like him anyway. But the thing is, both Oswald and Gibson have their merits. Oswald is a quite a famous officer, isn't he? And uh, um, he gets the DSO. And they both provide good service to the South Not Tsars in, in this period of interchanging command. It's a bit like a Neapolitan ice cream, the way they come. And uh, there's one there's layer after layer, one commands in the other. They come back, go away on courses and things. And I've never, I never really got to grips with it in 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 it. Now, after rest and recuperation, uh, they're sent back to support the Third Canadian Division. Uh, and uh, the Germans are intent on falling back. They're going to defend based on the Mers and Mars. I never realised the Mars was the Mers. I hope it still is. Uh, and uh, they're trying to stop the Allies getting uh, the Channel ports or Antwerp or anything like that. They're, that's what they're trying to do. 4th of September, the regiment, the South Otisars, move off to the Cap Grisney. How do you pronounce that, Gary? Grisney. Oh, thank you. Grisney sector. And 10th of September, they take up gun positions at the village of Rins- Ringsent. How do you pronounce that, Pete? Ringsent. <laughs> It's like ring piece, only zent. Oh, God. Uh, uh, just outside the town of Marquis. You you do this deliberately. You know how, how my mind works. I do apologise, uh, listeners. I do have a mild form of Tourette. Uh, anyway, the Germans have big gun batteries at both Cape, Cap, Cap, Cap Degree and Calais. Calais. Can you say Calais? <laughs> I can. Uh, well within range. And uh, the South Otsasar's gun positions, come, this isn't funny, come under heavy fire from some of the heavy German coastal guns uh, that are part of the sort of uh, garrison of the area. And this is uh, Signaler Ronald Paisley again, and he gives a bit of a description. Tell us what it's like. These are big shells, aren't they? Yeah. Signaler Ronald Paisley. At 4am on the morning of 14th of September... We were aroused from slumber by an unholy crash near at hand, followed by a rapping, rapid whirring over our tent. Shells, and big ones at that, were bursting very close to the positions. We remained in bed, but rather anxiously awaited further explosions. Ten minutes elapsed, and all seemed quiet when crash! Another one struck the earth. A further boo- booing of metal flew through the air, 
while we crouched flat. Heavens, they were big, much bigger than an ordinary field gun. We were wide awake now. From then on, at ten-minute intervals, others struck home, and always the threatening sound of those chunks of jagged metal, which could behead a man in an instant. Another violent explosion brought forth the comment, that one's nearer, but we had escaped again. Now, uh, the Canadian, they, uh, Operation Undergo, uh, they, 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 they're going to attempt to they, uh, capture the Captain Greeny, Greeny, whatever it is. Nay. You say it in future. Uh, and Calais, and that starts on 25th of September. And on that day, uh, Gunner Douglas Nichols of the 425 battery, he gets a really, really awful leg wound. And uh, I, I, I'm going to read these quotes. They're not funny. And... and, and I think they're quite emotive. Uh, he says this. Uh, we were firing at the German anti-aircraft guns. It was early in the morning. I was setting fuses. We were firing airburst shells. You, you have a key with numbers on it, and you were given a setting, and you had to bend down and set the fuse to the setting required. That's when I got hit. A piece of shrapnel hit me in the leg, the top of my left thigh. It was like a dull thud, a numbing pain. Suddenly, my leg went weak. I remember sitting down. One chap on the gun... His, his name was Jack Pettit, and he looked a bit sick when he saw it. He pulled out some field dressing and put it on it. A piece of shrapnel about two inch by one inch. Doesn't sound very big, does it, Gary? But it's big, and imagine the weight of it. Had shattered the bone into a lot of little pieces. It, was, it, it smashed the thigh. Our medical orderly, Tom Maidley, came and put me on a stretcher. They put a Thomas splint on my leg. I remember that from First World War. That's, that's, they invented that then, I think. I can remember Tom putting a pad on my face, and he was dropping chloroform on, on it to put me out of it. I came round when we were going over a ploughed field in a jeep, bumping up and down. I was in a lot of pain then because the sensation was beginning to come back. Uh, that's the sort of thing, both of us, it's interesting, both of us just laugh then. Not laugh, but it, that is just such a horrible idea, being in a Jeep with a, a leg that's been smashed to bits and the pain's coming back. Now, Nichols is evacuated back to Saint-Omer, where he put on, they put on a temporary plaster. This is going to be a long time in treatment, and in the book and the interviews, we follow him through. And he says this, I had, I had an idea it was pretty bad. I thought to myself... That's the end of my football career. It was touch and go. They tell me later I might have lost my leg. I'd always thought to myself, if I ever do get wounded, I hope it's not in the, the stomach or the head. I hope it's in the leg. And it was. So I was pleased about that. And it, it's nice to report that when he got back to England, Arsenal put in a big bid to sign him. He wouldn't be the first one-legged player that we'd signed. No, you were telling me about a, a one-legged player. What's his name? Pepper. <laughs> Sorry, um, but but the poor old Gunnar Nichols, and uh, he plays. And I come back to him at the end of the book because it, it's this these these are life changing moments for people. I mean, it, it, and it is the idea that you'll never play football again. It matters to a twenty one, twenty two year old. It don't matter much to us because I was never any good anyway. And I know you were good, but there comes a time when you can't play anymore. But for a twenty one, twenty two year old, it must be awful, awful. Anyway, what's captured? What what falls on the 29th of September? Cap Gris. I'm oh, sorry, Cap Green Day. <laughs> well, that was a bit of a... Oh, that <laughs> went well. Captured... <laughs> I'm not handing over things for you to pronounce the future. 
Uh, that falls on the 29th of September and, and Calais falls 30th. Uh, the battle for France is pretty well over by now. Uh, the next major objective, it, it, they're trying to get unimpeded sea access to Antwerp. Now, that's been captured on the 3rd of September and the 54Fars were part of that, uh, a, a regiment that you'll be hearing a lot of it to come. And you might say, who are these masked 54Fars? They're the five, second, second, not the first, Gary, second, five and four, four yeomanry. Why am I talking about them? Well, you'll find out, listener. Anyway, the 54Fars were part of that. They captured that 3rd of September, along with everybody else. And uh, it wasn't open, though, was it? Because the Germans, what do the Ger When you control a port, what's the use of that? If, what, what didn't they control, Gary? Well, they didn't control the, the seaway. So, for example, you've got to bring stores in. And if you've got submarines hunting in the area and things like that, um, it doesn't do you a lot of good. You could just, they controlled the other side of the Scheldt estuary. So they could just fire across. So it, it, you... I wasn't going to say that because I can't say that word. <laughs> the Scheldt. <laughs> No estuary. <laughs> I was avoiding saying that because I looked at the word and thought, I don't know how to say that. All right. Well, I see what you mean. Now, um, so tell me about the line of communications. Where does it stretch back to? That it, fundamentally, it's back to it's back to Aramanch. It's back to Normandy, isn't it? Because and and it, they were still often coming across the, almost the beaches, not the beaches, but Aramanch, the port there, because Cherbourg had been smashed to buggery. Uh, and the port installation wasn't usable. They, people say, well, what about the channel ports? Well, they'd only just been captured like the day before, you know, then. So Antwerp is absolutely crucial. And it's no point having Antwerp if you haven't got control of the Scheldt because you can't sail into it. The, the, it, it the, and they need it. They need it. They, they, they just need it. Uh, and, even with the, And presumably you need to dominate the skies as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so they, so the the the, the South Lotharsars have moved forward to be part of this battle, and they move forward uh, to round about the Leopold Canal, that's in northwest Belgium, and they're going to support the crossing of the, of that canal. It's well defended. Uh, again, they're supporting the Third Canadian Division, and they, uh, they put up they get gun positions in the village of Saint Laurent. Uh, and they're close to two two farmhouses on either side of the road. I don't know why I'm saying this. Just 300 yards from the canal. And as soon as they started the, the, the bombardment, the preparatory bombardment, the, the Germans, what do you think the Germans do? What would the Germans do normally if you start a bombardment? They'd probably return fire, Pete. They would. They retaliate with everything they've got. Uh, and if you're close, like the Canadians like to be, you're within range of what? Are you in range of their German medium artillery or the artillery, or are you in range of something else? Well, I would think you're in range of mortar fire. Absolutely. So what does Ronald Paisley say about this? Is it something about mortar fire? It is, Gary. OK. <laughs> Signal Ronald Paisley, 46 battery. Heavy concentrations of mortars pounded the near bank of the canal daily. Nights were exceptionally noisy with the din of our own guns blending with the shell bursts of the enemy. Light, medium and heavy guns hurled over shell after shell and the night was rarely dark for long. Flashes played like lightning over wrecked buildings. Tracers crisscrossed the sky in pencils of red. Oh, that's incredibly descriptive. Heavy shells began dropping behind us and lighter stuff to our flanks. The ripping sound of an occasional airburst kept heads down. Slit trenches are of little use against the latter unless simply covered with timber and earth. By day it was quieter, but nonetheless consistent, 
and we had an excellent view of the typhoons as they cut up the far bank of the canal. So, uh, uh, again, worth pointing out, it's not just guns now. The the Air Force uh, are, are crucial when, if they attack the right people, which is always a little bit problematic. Now, Albert Swinton uh, is there, and he's shocked by something, isn't he? What's Albert shocked by? Um, uh, he's 45 battery. Tell us what Albert thinks. I thought flamethrowers were the most diabolical weapon I'd ever seen in my life. We were one side of the canal and the Germans were the other side. It was so close. You could see these things. I couldn't put up with that. Just burning people alive. It didn't seem right somehow. It's not a gentleman's fight. The fact that I was blowing them to bits didn't matter. And so the Germans use flamethrowers. That's bad. We blow them to bits. That's fine. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's quite interesting. It's it's the, these different weapons have you, people have different sort of visceral reactions to them. And flamethrowers have never been popular. There are very few taken prisoner. I suppose it's the thought of of the pain of death by fire, whereas with an explosion, you're blown to bits. You know nothing about it. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, you are so sensitive. Now, the Germans fight really hard, but they can't withstand the, uh, the the concentrated artillery fire. It's not just the South Otisars. They're part of their Nagra, aren't they? It's a massive and ceaseless, endless air attacks. And they fall back towards Oosterberg. Uh, 107th begin to follow up. Uh, and they, they, it's a routine now. They're dropping into action whenever the Canadians want them to. Uh, now, so... We're setting the scene for the next episode, really. And what that next episode will be, will be the battle for Antwerp. Well, control of the Scheldt. Uh, that's the, 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 we've got Antwerp. We need to control the Scheldt. Uh, they've got a grip on the islands of Walcheren and South Beveland. And, uh, and, and the, the, this is the next story we're going to tell in the next episode. But for now, we'll leave the, the, the South the South Tsars getting ready for this, this big battle. And it is a big battle because they've got to... It's, how are they going to get to Walcheren and South Beaverland? Well, they're going to have to go across the Scheldt. They're going to have to go across, uh, across this vast expense of open water. Not particularly the guns themselves, but the, the, the attacking troops are. And also the forward observation officers are going to have to go. And that's going to be a big part of our tale in the next episode. I'm looking forward to I always look forward to the South Atsasars. Uh, I think it's been amazing. At times, quite chastening when you realise what people went through on our behalf uh, 60, 60 odd years ago, 70 years ago now, is it? I'm vague on... Yeah, no. Well, uh, anything else to say, Gary, before we wave a tear-stained hanky or something stained hanky to to our listeners? No, Pete, it's just, uh, if you want to know more about the South Nazis, there is, of course, a book that they could uh, purchase and read in greater detail at close range, I believe it's called. Yes, it is. And it's, uh, it's, it's already out now. It came out on the 7th of January. So you can buy your lovely hardback copy uh, for, for, for next to nothing, a mere pittance. And then you can read the full adventures of those South Knots Hussars. Dan, dan, dan. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com.pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?